is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Affirmative action as we know it is over in universities, but does that mean it's over? The Supreme Court makes a historic ruling. The homeless count in L.A. shows solving the problem might be a lot harder than anyone thought. Also, space is undulating all around us. Even now, it's waving through you and all of us. Why do I think you were, when you said space and you paused, yeah. why did I think you were going to say space, the final, final frontier? frontier? I thought you were going to do that. You know why? Because I was, why? I was thinking about it. I thought you I were. I was thinking about saying it, but okay. I didn't do it. Uh, we're going to tell you what this all means for our planet and our understanding of gravity. We start, though, with today's major Supreme Court ruling on college admissions and affirmative action. John Chu is a constitutional scholar who served in the George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush White Houses. Also with us is Elmer Rodan, who's executive director of Communities in Schools Los Angeles, which helps kids achieve their education goals. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Thank you. John, let's start with you. Uh, Just briefly uh, tell us what the Supreme Court actually said. Uh, Well, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, and uh, he he seemed to be pretty clear. He said uh, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it, is what he wrote. And uh, he also cautioned uh, those schools or universities that might think about how to circumvent today's opinion uh, by saying, what cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. Uh, and Justice Thomas, of course, uh, wrote a concurring opinion where he uh, discussed his experience growing up in the segregated South, the importance of colorblind equality before the law, and that in the past, Asian Americans have been discriminated against too, and that um, continuing discrimination on the basis of race is definitely impermissible. Elmer, how is this going to affect uh, education at uh, lower levels? I, I, I imagine we're going to see ripple effects all through education. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, this is a sad day in America because when racism and discrimination are an all-time high, the Supreme Court is sending a message that somehow this country has achieved colorblindness, and that is not true. What we are seeing is that more and more it's becoming increasingly more difficult for students of color and uh, from adverse backgrounds to achieve in life and uh, have access to higher education and better educational outcomes. And this decision is only going to make it even more difficult for those students to compete, um, even when it was already hard for them to enter those same institutions of higher learning. John, uh, you just heard Elmer say that this is a sad day for America, which kind of echoes uh, the sentiments that uh, President uh, Biden expressed uh, after the Supreme Court ruling. Do you think it's a sad day for America? Uh, I don't. Uh, I think that um, certainly what Elmer says is in line with what Justice Sotomayor said in her dissent. And these are these are all very valid concerns. I think that uh, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, we try to our best to treat everybody equally under the law, regardless uh, of their race or ethnic background. Uh, it is true, and I agree with Elmer, that we're not there yet, as, uh, as and we're trying to form a more perfect union. But I like to focus on the law itself, uh, as opposed to the policy. And uh, uh, the law is 
of what it is. And I think also in California, uh, as of 1995, California passed a, uh, a proposition, Prop 209, that already banned uh, race-based admissions and race-based hiring in public-funded uh, schools and other entities. So in a, in a lot of ways, California was way ahead of the of uh, the Supreme Court, and uh, that's also true in the state yeah. of Michigan. But which, but but John, uh, to to sort of Elmer's point, since you brought up the California law, isn't mm. it also true that since California passed its law banning affirmative action in public you know universities, that those public universities have reported a dramatic decrease? in the number of black and Hispanic students in attendance? Uh, we don't, We don't. at least at the federal level, we don't have uh, the hard data from the University of California or the CSU system. Uh, anecdotally, uh, I think that's uh, that's been alleged many times, uh, with, and without challenge, I might add. Uh, but the fact of the matter remains that uh, the... the a, a recent proposition attempt about 10 years ago to overturn Prop 209, uh, that failed uh, by a huge margin. Uh, most most Californians voting to uh, continue the uh, ban on race-based admissions. And, uh, you know, who knows, in the future, if uh, California wants to try again, they're more than welcome to. But I, I think with today's Supreme Court ruling, uh, any attempt to reinstate uh, race-based admissions or race-based hiring uh, the Supreme Court would not view view that uh, with any any fondness at all. All right, uh, John Shu, constitutional scholar, uh, served in uh, both Bush administrations. Also, Elmer Roldan, executive director of Communities and Schools, Los Angeles. Still ahead, the latest homeless count in L.A. raises the question of whether it's a problem that can ever be solved. Right now, though, back to today's Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action and college admissions with us. Tyrone Howard, education professor, head of the Black Male Institute at UCLA. And uh, Pedro Noguera, who's dean of USC's Ross Air School of Education. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Great to be with you. Tyrone, let me let me Thanks begin... Tyrone, let me begin with you. I mean, there are some people who are already making the argument that despite what the Supreme Court has ruled, there will be ways for schools, if they want to, to kind of get around the ruling and increase uh, the number of minorities uh, attending universities. But uh, California, as both of you gentlemen know, of course, has banned the use of affirmative action in its public universities for quite some time. And I believe it was Governor Newsom today who was giving out some figures about Berkeley. And among the uh, new applicant class of 7,000 roughly uh, uh, students, only about 228, according to the governor, are minority applicants. So it doesn't seem like it's easy to get around this sort of thing, does it? No, it's not. And, I, you know, while I personally think that the court got it wrong today with the ruling, which was not unexpected, I do think they left the door open a little bit to say that applicants can still talk about their experiences. And if they believe that race has had a, a, an influence or a played a factor in their lives, they can talk about that. So I don't think that's a way to skirt it. I think it's still a way to kind of talk about the holistic picture that uh, individual students have when they apply. But in many ways, I guess what I'm, what I'm disappointed with, with the ruling is that I think what the court told us is that they believe that we should, that we live in a colorblind society, that after four plus centuries of sort of exclusion, that you can kind of do away with that in four plus decades. And I just think it's the wrong direction to go. 
Uh, Tyrone, does it seem to you that the idea espoused uh, by some uh, on the conservative side is that the way to deal with racism in this country is to stop talking about it and then racism will disappear? Do you think that kind of thinking is uh, back behind this decision from the Supreme Court? I do, but I think it's backwards thinking. You don't, as Judge Sotomayor, uh, Justice Sotomayor said today, you don't deal with, with, with racism by not talking about racism. You deal with racism by acknowledging racism, understanding the ramifications that it has, and putting corrective measures in place to try to make sure we level the playing field. I think those on the on the right oftentimes sort of sort of sort of pro- propose that we're operating from a, a standard sort of you know universal playing field, and that's just not the case. And, and affirmative action was an attempt to do that, uh, and I think we're still far from being there. Pedro, as we said at the very beginning of this segment, California, of course, has banned affirmative action at public universities for a while now. In light of today's Supreme Court ruling, how does it impact a private university like USC? It's going to make it more difficult um, to admit a diverse class. Um, I I agree with my colleague, uh, uh, Tyron Howard, who said that, you know, they do say that you can focus on socioeconomic status and you know, USC is located in a low-income Latino and Black community. So it's very important to this university that we draw on students from our local community. So that might be a way to maintain some degree of diversity. But there's no doubt that it hurts. And where you're going to see the hurt the most is who becomes our professionals. When we prepare fewer Black and Latino doctors, it means there'll be fewer Black and Latino doctors in Black and Latino communities. So this not only affects the individuals who get the education, but those who are served by those who receive that education. And looking down the road, uh, this this uh, new rule stays in effect for a generation or more. And we begin to see after a few years, uh, the, the number of, uh, let's just say, uh, hypothetically, the number of minority students drops drastically over the next few years. And it becomes a major problem again. Could uh, another challenge be made to this ruling and maybe overturn it as this one overturns earlier rulings? Uh, that question to you, Pedro. Um, it, it appears unlikely to me unless there is a, a real movement for change uh, to address this inequity in our society. You know, you got to keep in mind, why would the Nixon administration, Republican uh, president, have enacted affirmative action laws in the 1970s? Well, it was in response to a civil rights movement, which was demanding change. Uh, We haven't had, we had a racial justice movement for a moment after the murder of George Floyd, but we've also had a backlash and a reversal, and we've seen in several states a reversal. So the irony is, even though our schools remain profoundly unequal. Uh, Almost 50% of Black and Latino kids in this country still attend schools that are not only racially separate, but profoundly unequal. It's ironic that we would say that in college, we're going to pretend that race doesn't matter because throughout our lives, we know it does. So I think in the absence of a movement, it's unlikely we'll see a change in the court. Tyrone, I'm I'm curious uh, your take on, on this. If we back it up, before somebody is even of college age, I wonder how many uh, younger uh, black students, Hispanic students, uh, you name the minority, uh, might now be totally discouraged from even applying to some of the more elite universities in the country, figuring that they are just simply not going to have a chance. 
Yeah, so that's a narrative that unfortunately does exist, that, that students who come from certain neighborhoods, Black and Latino students, are often told directly by college counselors that they're not going to get in, so, so don't bother applying. We know that African-American students, as well as Latino students, are more likely to call to do what's called undermatching, meaning they have the kind of academic profiles that would make them competitive for the UCs and for the privates, but because this perception exists that certain students would not be admitted, they don't apply. Will, will, it, be but will it be worse now? I, I, absolutely. I, I, because I think the perception is they really don't want, they being the institutions, they don't value and want diversity. So I think the loss will be significant for the foreseeable future because you will have highly qualified students who will not pursue these colleges and universities. And even those who with proper support could be eligible, they won't pursue them either. So I think we're going to look at institutions of higher education in the next decade in this state, and they'll look nothing like uh, what our population will look like across the country. All right. I uh, want to thank our guest, uh, Tyrone Howard, and also Pedro Noguera. Later in the show, black holes in outer space. Mm. They're stretching everything. Ah. And we mean everything. Yeah. We'll explain how that impacts Earth. More importantly, how it impacts Rob and me. That's right. And here's something interesting, Charles, about yeah. this. It's like a celestial choir. Ooh, that sounds very nice, actually. Music from the edge of science. Wow, that's, that's very what we're talking about here. That is very poetic. That's coming up. Uh, right now, though, we are continuing our discussion on today's historic Supreme Court ruling on affirmative, uh, affirmative action for college admissions. Uh, can this have an impact beyond universities? Attorney Angela Reddick-Wright is with us. She attended UCLA Law School and was in the last class admitted before Prop 209 was approved in 1996. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So uh, talking about ripple effects from this ruling today, will this ripple down into employment? You know, it remains to be seen, but uh, many are commenting that we do expect to see this impact the work environment um, simply because it started to impact the workplace environment even before this ruling. If you if we look at the timeline, we see that post um, George Floyd's death in uh, two, two to three years ago, that many companies started to make commitments to improving and enhancing their diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. And with the political climate in this country, in the last two to three years, those um, practices by companies have been challenged. And we've seen it most recently in the news with the reverse discrimination case against Starbucks, where a white woman employee sued the company alleging reverse discrimination and was awarded a $25 million verdict. So I think while it's not directly correlated, um, we'll start to see um, just the attitude, the change um, in culture in this country around issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, transporting and impacting the workplace. I mean, is it that the thinking would be that if the Supreme Court, as it has, decided that affirmative action is wrong for universities, private and, and public, that therefore if, if a case involving employment were to make it up the ladder to this particular uh, Supreme Court, it would rule the same way. Would it, that be the, the logic? Uh, well, it would be in a traditional discrimination case, most mm. likely a reverse discrimination case, because we already have on the books, both at the federal level, as well as all states, all 50 states have laws that say you cannot have discrimination in employment, whether that be on race, gender, religion, etc. So there are already laws that prohibit discrimination in terms of employment. But many companies coupled with those laws and honoring those laws 
have also added enhanced programs to help them improve and increase diversity within their work environments to reflect the consumer bases that many of these companies serve. And so what's happening um, as companies are trying to enhance their efforts to increase diversity, many white employees, male employees, et cetera, those who aren't traditionally seen to be in protected categories are now challenging those policies and the, those programs, saying they're having a reverse effect of excluding white individuals or males or other you know, individuals that we might not consider to be traditionally discriminated against. And there is concern uh, from some, though, uh, that this Supreme Court shows willingness to overturn decades of settled law. They did it with Roe v. Wade. They're doing it uh, here in this case. So there is worry from some about what's still ahead. Indeed. Yeah. And I think um, the unfortunately, the climate has been created where I think, you know, those who have more conservative views and are challenging, you know, d- diversity, equity, inclusion policies and affirmative action are going to be looking for creative ways to bring these issues before the court um, across the board in um, hiring practices and employment in contracting practices in the business environment. I think, you know, this unfortunately is the beginning of a tough season ahead and taking us back to a time that I think we, many of us, at least myself, uh, were hoping we wouldn't see again, but here we are. All right. Uh, Attorney Angela Reddick, right? Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Uh, you would think with the money being used and the programs implemented to try to reduce homelessness, we would see fewer homeless people on the streets. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. The most recent homeless count, in fact, finds the number of people who are homeless in the L.A. area has increased from last year. Kirkpatrick Tyler is with Urban Alchemy which helps provide services for homeless people in L.A. and elsewhere. Thanks for being with us. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having us um, uh, to talk about this, you know, just this information and this really important issue for our city and for the nation. Yeah, and it and it does seem like a, a an impossible problem to solve. Uh, I mean, you know, as we said in the in the intro, so much money has been spent uh, forget about just in L.A., uh, across the country, major cities, New York, Chicago, uh, to try to deal with this crisis. And it just seems as if it is never ending. So is there a solution? Sure, absolutely. So I, I think to be fair in the conversation, uh, the investments that we're making are decades behind. Right. We we spent a significant amount of time under investing in homelessness. And so for the investments that we're seeing now, uh, they are substantial. Uh, you know, uh, people feel like it's a lot, but we it, this is the really the time to double down and continue pushing forward uh, and not to kind of relent and withdraw because we're, we're really playing catch up in a sense. Uh, and, and so I think like that's an important piece uh, to keep in front of us. I think for Urban Alchemy, from the position of a service provider, we want to we want to encourage people, you know, from from the folks who are engaged on the front lines every day to stay involved. We need more mental health professionals. We need to figure out policies uh, that can continue to break down the barriers for access to affordable housing. And so I, I think while the numbers might give some folks pause, while they might discourage some folks that this really is the time that we drive forward. 
Well, you kind of answer the existential question there. Is this a matter of doubling down where we are now, which you seem to agree with, uh, versus mm-hmm. those who look at the numbers today and they say, look, uh, we've tried everything. We've tried this. We've tried that. And this mm-hmm. thing we're doing now is not working either. Look at the numbers. Uh, how do you answer those people who say that? Sure. So I don't think that the numbers say that it's not working. The numbers say that there's still work to do. Uh, one, we see that the, the increase is less than what we've seen in previous homeless counts in terms of uh, the, the percentage increase. Uh, what we're also seeing over these last couple of years uh, is that we are implementing new interventions and, and ideas around uh, interim housing, uh, around alternative to police response. So there are some interventions that are just now getting ramped up. And so, so I, I don't think we're, if we just look at the numbers in isolation, then uh, it can be discouraging. But if we are willing to sit back and look at the amazing amount of work that's going into fighting homelessness, uh, it will convict us to continue moving forward. But, but the problem, of course, is that people don't uh, look at the numbers in isolation, do they? They, they look at the tents in the street or the numbers of people that they see walking around clearly homeless and they think to themselves, gee, so much tax dollars has been spent to try to resolve this. And all we see when we walk around whatever neighborhood we happen to be walking around is an ever increasing number of homeless people. Sure. So I I think there's always going to be a different uh, perspective, right, for the folks that are doing the work and seeing like the impact day to day. And for the folks that are, you know, basing it off of kind of what they see day to day as they move throughout the world. Uh, what what I would encourage is like we know giving up isn't the answer. Not doing anything isn't going to move us any further forward. I do think we have some critical conversations uh, that need to be had. I do think that there are things that we look at policy, you know. What are the barriers that keep people out of housing? What are the barriers that keep us from being able uh, to spend dollars and to use housing vouchers? How do we further engage uh, at the state and federal level? What are the additional resources and hands to this work that we need to employ? All right. Thank you, uh, Kirkpatrick Tyler with the Urban Alchemy. So uh, I mentioned this before the break. Are, are you feeling the, the stretch now, the pull? I'm feeling stretched and contracted. I'm feeling kind of the same. I think yeah. mainly for me, yeah. I think it's because my shirt shrank in the wash. Yes. But I feel the compression. Right. It might be due to cosmology, though. We it are undulating be. right now, you and I. Oh, I beg your pardon? Yeah. But you're undulating. I just can't see it. But I I know you are. Speak for yourself. (laughs) A research group called Nanograph found that black holes out in space are stretching and squeezing everything. And we mean everything. And it does kind of make a music of sorts, uh, a celestial choir, if you will. And I will. Uh, Here to help us make sense of this cosmic wonder is Chiara Mingarelli, astrophysicist at Yale University and Nanograph member who helped with this research. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So it is kind of like a music. How how exactly is it like a kind of music from space? Well, it's like a choir. So we have heard this very low frequency hum. So it's like choir or maybe like the end of a yoga class where everyone goes, um, 
at the same time. It's this very low frequency hum. That's what we found. You do that very well. Can you do that one more time? <laughs> sure. Um, so the universe um, is trying to get in shape. <laughs> absolutely. The universe is going to yoga regularly. So what does this say to to you as an expert? What what is what is the excitement there about? There are so many things that are exciting about this discovery. First of all, we've never detected a gravitational wave background before with any instrument. Um, and a gravitational wave background is not only this one, you know, uh, hum from a galaxy trying to get into shape, uh, but it's from the cosmic merger history of supermassive black holes. And these are a billion times the mass of the sun. So we didn't only find one supermassive black hole binary signal. So one uh, merging supermassive black hole merging with another one. But we found evidence for 100,000 merging supermassive black holes, up to a million of them merging at these very low um, frequencies. So it's super exciting because before now, we didn't even know if supermassive black holes could merge. So not only do they merge, but they appear to do so very happily and very enthusiastically. You do that again. You know, you yeah, do that. The, 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 um, yeah. why, why don't we all try? It? Can you can, you, you, you lead us off? Go ahead. How does it go again? Okay, let's do on three, two, one. Right. Three, two, one. Um. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> I'm thirsty. <laughs> uh, for for people who have not let's seen say. the movie Interstellar and may not be aware, you refer to black holes. I think uh, more people know what black holes are because they they've watched science fiction movies. But explain what black holes are for the layperson. Sure. So black holes kind of have uh, a bad name. They're they're not really black and they're not really holes. So they they look black because the light that is created inside of the event horizon of the black hole, this point of no return, it just can't escape. So if you imagine that there's some sort of ball of stuff at the center of a black hole, you can imagine light trying to get out like water coming up from a water fountain and then falling back in on itself because the light itself is bent by the space-time curvature that the black hole creates. So not even light can escape. But if light could escape, there's no reason to believe that these black holes would be black, but it, it can't escape. So that's why they look black. We remember so okay. supermass. Oh yeah. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. The supermassive black holes uh, that are potentially creating this cosmic hum, uh, we're not really sure how those formed. They're completely different in terms of their formation history than the black holes that we've heard about before that are chirping in the LIGO band. So those baby black holes, they're only like 10 times the mass of the sun. When they merge, they make a whoop sound. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, oh, no, wait. That, hold it. That's, that's a new one. Do that one. You want to try that, Ross? Uh, no. No. <laughs> I'm afraid, a, I'm afraid it would hurt me. <laughs> uh, yeah, those, you, you can feel it. black holes, yeah. The so, little black holes make that sound, and the supermassive ones make the very low frequency hum. It's kind of like dogs. Like the smaller ones, they'll make the like louder chirping noises. Right. And the bigger ones kind of like howl all together. So we were talking before uh, that, Rob and I, that, that, you know, we're all being kind of pulled and stretched by these gravitational waves, right? That's right. To, to what degree? I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm being stretched. Well, some days. Should, uh, what but, Charles wants to know, should we be worried? Yeah. 
Absolutely not. You are oh, you are being stretched and squashed. Yeah. Uh, by one part in a million billion. Oh. So, yeah, this, there's really nothing to worry about. That would be something like ten meters over a light year. Right. In terms of distance, and light years are like you know the scales to the closest stars that we have. So I don't have to buy uh, a new wardrobe or right. anything like that. No, unfortunately, we're we're not competing with any kind of weight loss group. <laughs> and, and, still. and now <laughs> let's get to the market. really uh, let's get to the really freaky part of this. We're not just being stretched in that way. We're also being stretched in time, aren't we? That's right. By a hundred nanoseconds every ten years. So what does that mean? That that's all that it means. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that it means. It's beyond that our ability not, to understand, Charles. That, that is the best ex- scientific best explanation I've ever heard. What does it mean? That's what it that's, means. That's what it means. That's what it means. <laughs> it, it is what it is. Uh, and now for the uh, final astrophysicist question I've always wanted to ask, because as I understand science, which admittedly not as, nearly as well as you can, uh, that uh, you know the, uh, nothing can happen now because when I look at Charles, the light from Charles's face takes time to travel to my eyes, and then that signal takes time to travel to my brain, and it takes time for my brain to process. Hey, that's Charles. So nothing happens now. So we're really alone, aren't we? Wow, that's heavy. That was- <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like this is a better question for yoga class. Than yeah, let's me. go back to <laughs> yoga. All right, uh, before we uh, end this uh, the most fascinating science lesson ever, uh, let's go through the sounds that we learned today. Uh, so we had the first, we had the space yoga, right? So what did that sound like? Um, and then we had the, the little baby black holes uh, dancing and emerging. That sounded like... All right. I think we need to make an album. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is uh, Chiara Mingarelli, astrophysicist at Yale University. But but that thing that you were going through before about yeah. the light going back, it sounded like the kind of discussion you'd have at night sitting around eating a lot of potato chips. Uh, having maybe partaken of something before the potato <laughs> chips as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to say, but, you know, it's there. Uh, that's it for In-Depth Today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.